Um, if you would like to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to be reading from uh, chapter, verse 5, and chapter 14 onwards, on page 71. I still feel having waved my arms in the air in public on a, on a Sunday morning. My inner Presbyterian is freaking out at the minute uh, after that, but thank you for that, Robert. That was wonderful. Um, let's hear God speak to us. Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots, along with the other chariots of Egypt, officer and officers over them all. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh of Egypt so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Haroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there was the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? If we, if we, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it to dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and clawed at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of the chariot so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. And the Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. And the water flowed back and covered the chariots, horsemen, and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. 
But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, and and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is God's word. Amen. Um, A few weeks ago, I was sitting in a cafe um, reading the new Northern Irish census data because, as you can tell, I'm great fun at parties. And there was a lady beside me who who looked at what I was reading and said, oh, this is really interesting, isn't it? Because it was a couple of days after it came out. She said, it's really interesting that now we've got less of those backwards, bigoted religious people in this country. And then she asked me what I did for a living. Um, and she said, oh, this is really interesting, and we, we had quite a, quite a long conversation. And uh, at one point she said to me, do you know what the trouble is with you Presbyterians, which is always, you always know you're going to get high praise and what's about to come. She said, you focus too much on the Old Testament. You focus too much on the Old Testament. Whenever I go to a Presbyterian church, I read about, I hear uh, parts of the Bible that talk about judgment being read out. Whenever really what I want to hear is about Jesus and forgiveness. That's what I want to hear, but I don't want to hear about the Old Testament. I tried to chat to her and say, well, you know, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and it's all one book, it's all one God, and there's grace in the Old Testament as there is in the New. But she was fairly settled in her mind whenever she was chatting to me. But I think that idea that she got at and she kind of put her finger on that, you know, in the Old Testament's God of judgment, New Testament's a God of grace, that's an idea that's alive amongst us still, even in Christian circles. You know, how many of us kind of go through the Old Testament groaning because we feel there's going to be a lot of old judgment. And then we we want to run to the Gospels and read them instead because, you know, they're about grace and they're about love and they're about the things that we like. But the reality is this story that we're reading this morning, the story of Exodus, is one of the most foundational stories in the Bible that teaches us about salvation and about grace and about God's love for people who don't deserve it. And if you were to ask an Israelite who was fleeing out of the sea and had crossed over and witnessed all these events, if you were to ask them, what has happened to you? What has your God been doing with you? What do you think they would have said? They would have said, I was in horrible bondage, but because of his grace, now I'm free. They would have said, He's leading me into a paradise promised land that I am journeying through the wilderness towards. I look forward to it with hope. I know I'm not there yet, but I look forward to it until it comes. They would have said, wherever I go, I know that my God is with me and dwells in our midst. They would have said, my people were broken. My people were enslaved to a slavery that was leading to death. And God raised up a mediator to lead us from death and into life and into freedom. Words that we would use to describe our faith are the same sort of phrases that would have been in the mouths of the Israelites as they journeyed out of the Red Sea and on towards the promised land. Exodus, I think as I chatted about it, but whenever we first opened this book, Exodus is a book that is filled with echoes and pictures and little, in a sense, glimpses of what will come in Jesus. 
And here we have what is possibly one of the most prime examples of that. The Exodus event that we will look at this morning is the salvation event for the people of Israel. Modern Jewish people today will still celebrate this event and say their God is their savior because he freed them from Egypt. And we say, oh, it's so much richer because the enemy he frees us from is not just a foreign power, but a sin and death itself. I want to look at that this morning in three really simple ways. I want to see what we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved to. What we're saved from, what we're saved by, and what we're saved to. And I don't have a clicker with me, apologies, but what are we saved from? What are we saved from? Well, we are saved from slavery. And that might sound a bit strange to us. We probably don't think of our lives as being in slavery. But if you read through the New Testament, it's interesting that one of the main pictures that the New Testament will use to describe sin is slavery. So for example, Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 34 says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We are all enslaved by it. And so we see that the enslavery that we have is, is there is sin wrapped up in it, there's a struggle wrapped up in it, and there's a sentence wrapped up in it. I've managed to get three yeses in the sub point as well. I'm very proud of this this morning. But our sin is slavery. Our sin is slavery. And you might say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's very strong language to use to describe sin, isn't it? Slavery, because slavery is such a charged word in our society. And yet sin, if you look at it, is something that enslaves us all so readily. You know, there was a a great argument by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, you know, there are two things that are true in this life of everybody. We all have our own moral code. Even if you're skeptical of the claims of Jesus this morning, I would say you have a moral code that you live your life by. We all have a moral code we live our life by. That's something that we can all agree on. And the second thing that he said was true was that, you know, we have all broken our own moral code, haven't we? Those of us who are Christians know we have broken our own moral code, and we admit that freely. But even if you're skeptical of that this morning, I think we all have things that we are ashamed of that we wish we had done differently because we went against our own values. We are all sinners, but are we enslaved to sin? Enslaved? As I said, that's a strong word. And I think often... The reason we, we, we aren't so uncomfortable with that idea is that so often we think of sin as the little bad things that we do. So if any of you have been on Slimming World, you will know that you count food in sins. And I presume a piece of chocolate cake has more sins in it than an apple. The idea being the more pleasurable something is, the more sinful it is. And that's often the way we can think about sin. You know, it's something that we do that's enjoyable for our moments, a little cheeky, tongue-in-the-cheek type thing that we do, or we say that little naughty thing that gives us a moment of pleasure, but we know's wrong in the long term. That's often the way we can think about sin. When sin is something actually that pollutes and changes and warps us. The example I always use, and I think I've used it here before, so forgive me for using it again, but the example I use is, imagine a grumpy old man. Don't point any fingers, but imagine a grumpy old man. How did they get grumpy? <clears throat> the way they got grumpy was not they woke up one day and said, you know, I want to be my least, the least favorite relative at the dinner table at Christmas. But what happened to them is little by little, little acts of selfishness, little acts of pride, 
Little moments where they didn't extend grace and mercy towards somebody who needed it. And bit by bit, year by year, their heart grew harder and more callous, and they grew colder as a person. Until suddenly, they wake up one day, and they are the person they probably despised when they were in their youth. And the most horrifying thing about it is that they probably don't even realize what has happened to them. Because sin enslaves. Bit by bit, doesn't say from the outset, you know, if you do this, you're going to end up here down the line. It just says, oh, it's just a small lie. It's just a a little dig about somebody. Sure, I deserve this anyway. It's filled with so many tantalizing small steps that take us deeper and deeper into its slavery and bondage until we can't escape it because we can barely even see it. Sin enslaves us. And sin has a struggle as well. If you look down with me, it's interesting. You would think the the Israelites are fleeing, in a sense, a, a horrific slavery under the Egyptians. And we would think, well, they're just going to want to do whatever Moses tells them to do to get away from the Egyptians, surely? But that's not what happens. Sure, it's not. If you look down at verse 11, they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out in the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Because here's the great lie and the great struggle with sin. Even whenever we are saved, even whenever we've been brought out of sin, it still beckons to us, doesn't it? It still wants to call us back into its old ways. You know, as Christians, we believe that we no longer are mastered by sin, but we are mastered by Christ and that he is the voice that we listen to, but yet it's so difficult, isn't it? And just like these Egyptians or these Israelites who would say, well, actually, maybe, maybe the Egyptians were a good thing. And they begin to misremember things because what do they say? They said that whenever Moses came to them, they said, well, you go away from us. We don't want to hear anything because we want to stay with the Egyptians. They're teaching us quite well, actually. That's what they're accusing Moses because they're misremembering what it was actually like already. Because if you look away back into chapter four, whenever they first meet Moses and Aaron, it says that Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he performed these signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. They're misremembering. They're saying, oh Moses, when you came to us, we wanted nothing to do with you when it was the furthest thing from the case. It was such good news when they first heard it. And here now, whenever things get tough and are a struggle, they twist it. It goes all the way back to Eve in the garden. Whenever the snake says to her, you know, did God really say? In the same way the Israelites, were we really that badly treated? And for us, is it really that bad if we get away with it? There is a struggle against sin as it tries to claw back at us and hold on to us. And yet, it will lead ultimately to a final sentence, which is death. Death is ultimately where slavery would have ended for the Israelites. They had been worked to the bone. They would have died in Egypt, slaves, never knowing freedom. 
And for us, sin leads to death. Often we don't think about it in that way, but the reality is there's so much of the decay and the rot and the, the things that we see in the society that we know are wrong result from small little sins. We're about to enter into an economic recession. What has brought that about? But thousands, if not millions, little acts of greed and selfishness that are built into a system and are built into a country that ultimately reap their reward as it all begins to crumble down. Sin is not just bad little things that we do. It's a pollutant. It's a rot. And it's ultimately death in our society. That's what we're enslaved to. But we see in this passage there is a way out and that we are saved as well. So what are we saved by? If you look down with me at verses 13 and 14. You might expect them to say, well, you know, run really fast, fight off the Egyptians. No. What Moses says to the people is, do not be afraid. Can you imagine how ridiculous that advice would have seemed to the initial Israelites? They're facing down what is possibly one of the most technical, technologically advanced armies in the ancient world, and they are unarmed. They have no real army to speak of, and they're backed up against the sea. They are fleeing. They have no chariots, and the chariots are like an ancient version of a tank because infantry can do nothing against them. And you can imagine their, almost their shock whenever Moses would say, do not be afraid. They're almost, you can imagine the response being, face up to facts, Moses. Be a realist for a minute. But instead, what Moses says to them is, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Do you see how utterly passive the Israelites are in all this? You know, in what world could we ever say the Israelites earned their right to escape the Egyptians? You know, they've, they're barely out of Egypt and they're already gurning that they're being saved from it. And yet God will step in in grace and mercy to not just to do something wonderful for them, but to fight on their behalf, to overcome their enemies while they are, in effect, supine, waiting, standing still and watching God do it all for them. This is grace at its core. God not asking anything of us, but operating out of it his own sheer, infinite and divine love of grace as he saves people who don't deserve it and brings them into his presence. This is the gospel. This is what we're being primed for as we work our way through the book of Exodus, that God defeats our greatest enemies, sin and even death itself, he fights for us by sending his one and only son to die on our behalf so we need only to be still. So we need only but to stand and watch as God does it all. And I think there can be a great temptation for us that we think that, well, that's all well and good, 
but surely I have to really trust and I have to really you know, know my heart and know that my heart's thinking and am I really trusting in this enough or am I really relying on this enough? You know, sometimes we can think, well, am I fighting against sin enough for me to save myself? And we can almost feel that there's a, almost a contradiction between the idea of grace and fighting against sin. And yet, I think one of the wonderful things to think about is can you imagine the Israelites walking through the sea, pillars of water on either side of them, there are some who would have went in and thought, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this marvelous? Look at what our God has done for us. Look at the miraculous way he is saving us. Isn't he wonderful? Oh, praise to him. And then you would have had, which I must confess would have been my reaction, which is, I'm going to die here. Like, look at this. This is how I die. This is literally how I die. Why am I doing this? This is awful. I don't want to be here. Get me out the other side of this. And the reality is, whilst one may have more trust than the other, the reality is both are saved regardless of the amount of trust that they have. Because it is not the amount of faith that you have that saves you, but it is the object of your faith that saves you. It is not a matter of you trying to trust Jesus harder. It is not a matter of you trying to rely on God more. It is a matter of whether you do or you don't. Because it's not a matter of trying to spurn up your heart more emotions of, of love and of wonderful things about Christianity. It is just about do we trust in the object of our faith who is our saviour Jesus or do we not? It is not about, oh, you know, they're really a super Christian and I'm not so I could never be that. We're all in the one boat together, trusting on our God. Some of us, feeling a bit close to the wire sometimes, but the regardless is grace is bringing us all through because that is how God saves us. Not in our own strength, but in his. So finally, what does he save us to? What does he save us to? If you look down with me, the way this chapter ends in verse 31, it says, and the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians and the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. God is not just saving his people so that they can be free. Often I think whenever we think about becoming a Christian, we think about it as getting a ticket punched. I'm saved, sin has no hold of me. I can now kind of go and be free and do whatever I want. But why, what is the purpose of God bringing his people through this sea? The point is so that they can come to Mount Sinai and get to know him. And the point of us being saved through Jesus is not just that we can go and be free and happy, it's that we can know the God who sent him. That is the point. And that is what we are saved to. We are saved to a knowledge and relationship with God and you know, we use the language of, you know, it's relationship, not religion so much. I think sometimes we can lose the marvel of this. And I want you to realize how countercultural it is to say that you can know the one true divine God. You know, if you look through census data at the minute, what you'll see is the majority of people um, who identify as religiously unaffiliated, it's not that they're atheists. The majority of people tend to be agnostic. And what that means, it doesn't that, it kind of means that they think that there probably is a God, but if there is a God, you can't know. And wherever you go, you will hear of people buying into this idea that, well, you can't really know for certain that there's a God. You know, I was listening to a song um, on the radio a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, and the chorus was describing God saying, you're unnameable, you're unknowable, and all we have is metaphor, and that's what time and space are for. And for so many people who you know, they will think that you just know a little bit of a God as like a metaphor, as a picture, and they have their own little picture. But the promise of Christianity subverts all that. Because it says God isn't far off that we have to try and clutch at metaphors to describe him. But rather, it's a God who comes close and enters into time and space so that you may know him and know him intimately. The purpose of the Exodus is to bring the people out so that they may know their God, not just know about him. There's a great writer, um, Jim Packer, who wrote a book called Knowing God. He passed away a couple of years ago. But he said, you know, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have the energy to serve him, you have the boldness to share him, and you have the contentment in him. So I ask you this morning, do you just know about God? He's out there in the sky, the big man upstairs. Or do you know him? Because the invitation of Exodus and the invitation of the gospel is to not to keep him out there at arm's length, but it's to know him in here. To know him, not as the big man upstairs, but to know him as father. He's not holding himself off from you, but he's inviting us to come and to know him more through grace. This is the invitation of the gospel. Come and know your God, because he's revealed himself so freely. And it's the invitation to us this morning. So let's come and let's know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're not far off and distant, but you are revealing yourself to us through your word and you have made yourself known to us so surely and so certainly. Lord, would we find contentment in you, our wonderful creator and maker, our savior, our Lord and our redeemer. And Lord, would we rejoice that we get to know you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.